Good morning. My name's Andy. I'm an elder here at North Shore, and I have the privilege to read the last chapter of Judges today for our message, and then after that I'll be praying for myself and this church. Judges 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you will do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women who they had saved alive of the woman of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labonia. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin." And when their fathers and their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. 
And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to the number from the dancers whom they had carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Dear Father, God in heaven, I thank you this morning for the ability to be here. I thank you for your word that you've given us to share and to learn and to know more about you. I thank you for the blessings you have shown. I thank you for this congregation here. I thank you for the songs of praise and our worship leaders. God, I thank you that you have blessed all of us in so many ways, too countless to speak about. I thank you that this morning we meet to honor you, to praise you, to remember all of the things you do, all the promises you have for us, and especially the promise of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, that as each one of us falls short of your glory, as each one of us is not righteous, but yet through your Son, Jesus, you have allowed us the ability to know you, through your Son, Jesus, to have our sins forgiven, to be in a right relationship with you, God, that we can know your peace and your love and everlasting life with you in your presence. God, I ask for forgiveness for all of this congregation and myself for the sins we do commit. And we ask for that forgiveness through your Son, Jesus' name. I also ask for your blessings now, that they would be on Duncan as he brings your word and your message. I also ask your blessings on the teachers with our children as I'm speaking, as they're learning more about you, that they would know you at an early age and be able to walk with you for a long time as their Savior and as their God. God, I ask your blessings again on the rest of this service. Through Jesus, your Son's name, amen. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we want to thank you for Carmen Chug. We do pray for her as she's asked us to. Father, we pray that you would bless her, that you would speak directly to her needs at this conference, that she would be encouraged, that she would be challenged, whatever it is that her soul needs to be more happy in Jesus and to be more effective in his service, we pray you do for her. Father, we pray that as she goes back to Italy, we pray, Father, that you would use her powerfully to tear off the veil that lies over the hearts of these unbelievers, this veil placed by Satan, but which you can remove through your word. And we pray that you would do that, that you would bring after eight years of labor, that you would bring a harvest. Father, that there would be many people who have not sincerely called on the name of Christ to do that and be saved. Father, as we turn to your word now, we do pray. We thank you, God, that it is an eternal word. God, there's so many things on this earth that we're not bringing to heaven with us. 
uh, many of which we enjoy. But one thing we know we will be bringing to heaven is this word, this 66 books, this, this volume of books inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by sinful men and yet inerrant, inspired, authoritative. And God, we pray that as it goes forth today, that Christ would be lifted up and that you would do whatever you need to do in me so that I might say this in such a way that it would be from you and that it would carry your authority and your power. God, move and change us. Bring glory to your Son, Jesus, as you conform us more and more to his image. We pray all these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we do come, as Andy read, to the last chapter in the book of Judges. Uh, Lord willing, we'll conclude this series of messages next week um, in this intensely relevant and profitable book. I'm sure it just struck me again. I've been living in this text all week. It struck me again as Andy was reading. What a really ridiculous story this is. And if you're hearing it for the first time, you're going to hear a strange, ridiculous, and frankly offensive story. So if you're hearing it for the first time and you heard a ridiculous, strange, and offensive story, you were understanding it. There's not some hidden meaning behind all of this. It is what it is. And so we need to look at it today to find out what on earth God could possibly be telling us through this strange, ridiculous, and offensive story. You'll recall that we're going to do a little bit of review, so those of you that are coming this week will try and give you a place to jump on. In this last section of the book, which is in chapters 19 through 21, the author tells this very complex and frankly grisly story that depicts the profound spiritual and moral decay that Israel was experiencing during this 300-year period of the judges before the kings came. Okay? The beginning and the end of this story, beginning of 19, the end of 21, which you heard Andy read, the author writes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Okay? The Jews had chosen to rebel against their national king, their covenant god, Yahweh. Okay? And one symptom of that is expressed in the final phrase of this book, which is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So ultimately, this series of disgusting events recorded in Judges 19 to 21 is a portrait of what life becomes in a culture where God is no longer acknowledged as king and where everyone lives according to their own warped understanding of what is right and what is wrong. In other words, this is America in 2019. This is the West. This is the world in 2019. And sadly, it's too much of the church in 2019. As we saw last time, the story in this final section begins with a domestic disagreement where a concubine, which we said was kind of a second-class wife, leaves her husband, who happens to be a priest in Israel. And after a few months, they have some sort of domestic disagreement. The scholars disagree about what that is. But after a few months, the Levite, or this priest, decides to retrieve his wife and travels to her father's home, which happens to be in Bethlehem. On his return journey with her, they spend the night in the town of Gibeah. Okay? And that's a tribe of Benjamin. You heard about Benjamin this morning. 
An old man takes them into his house for the night, but soon after they settle in, wicked sexual predators pound at the door. They demand that this old man send out this Levite, his guest, so that they can abuse him sexually. Okay? This man, this old man, not wanting to be dishonored as an ungracious host, rather than do nothing or fight them, instead callously offers these men his virgin daughter or the wife of this Levite. Well, the decision as to who they will abuse is ultimately made by this Levite when he forces his wife out the door and she is brutally raped all night. This is a not ready for prime time story. The next morning, the man takes his wife, alive or dead, we're not sure, the text is ambiguous intentionally, places her on his donkey and brings her back to his home in Ephraim. Upon arriving at home, This is the grisly part. He butchers his now dead wife, dividing up her body into 12 parts, which he sends out each part as a parcel to each one of the 12 tribes. The nation is outraged by these rapists in Gideon and their sin, and this sadly prompted by this grisly response by the husband. Without any sincere seeking after God's will in the situation, the Jews did what was right in their own eyes, and they sought vengeance on these rapists. Okay? But before they did that, they had these 11 tribes opposing Benjamin. They had a religious assembly of some sort. We're not sure what kind, but they got together and had some sort of religious assembly. It was probably a pagan religious service, but we're not sure. That's at Mitzpah where they make a number of foolish but impactful decisions. First, they gather 400,000 warriors who had heard about what had happened in Gibeah, these men, what they had done. And so they decide to punish Gibeah. Again, none of this response is directed by God. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. That's the whole point. They try diplomacy first as they initially go to the men of Benjamin and ask them to turn over these wicked men from Gibeah. The men of the tribe of Benjamin not only refuse to turn them over, they muster an army of 26,000 highly skilled fighting men to defend them. In response, the Israelites attack these men of Benjamin in three separate battles. The first two advances are disastrous. The Israelites lose 43,000 men, while these men of Benjamin experience almost no loss. And the author makes it clear that Yahweh uses these costly battles to judge these paganized, rebellious Israelites by sending so many of them to their deaths. Before the third battle, the Israelites finally come to God. They humble themselves before God at least a little bit. And in response, God uses the Israelite army to massacre the warriors from Benjamin. At the end of the third battle... Only 600 Benjamite warriors remain. Okay? This tiny remnant escapes by running and hiding at a rock. The Israelites invade the land occupied by their very own tribe of Benjamin. They declare a holy war on its inhabitants, and they destroy all the cities, including every man, every woman, and every child in the tribe of Benjamin. So that the only people remaining alive at this point from Benjamin are these 600 defeated warriors who managed to survive the battle. Okay? Now that might be the end of the story, except 
the author reveals in this chapter a very important detail that he had concealed in chapter 20. And that is, the Israelites in this religious assembly swore two oaths that were very foolish and very impactful. As we'll see, these oaths the Jews swore at mitzvah make an already wretched mess, and it's all you can say about it, into an even more complicated and disastrous situation. What Andy read in chapter 21 is nothing more than a recounting of the natural consequences of a people who do not submit to God as king and where everyone does what is right in his or her eyes. The chapter begins with this crucial detail the author has until now concealed. That is, in addition to making war plans against Benjamin in this religious assembly at Mizpah, the leaders also swear an oath. That is, that after they defeated the tribe of Benjamin, none of the Israelites' warriors would give their daughters to any of the surviving warriors. Okay? So after we beat them, we're not going to give our wives to any of these men. Okay? This is incredibly hypocritical because up to this point in Judges, there's been no real concern about intermarrying with the pagans, the Canaanites surrounding them. Samson had married a pagan. But in this emotionally charged moment of self-righteousness before the battle, the Jews vow not to intermarry with their fellow Jews. This created a huge problem because there were 600 after the battle, 600 surviving Benjamite males and all of their wives and all of their potential wives had been massacred. The remaining 600 Benjamite warriors were either going to have to intermarry with the pagans, remain celibate, which would have destroyed the tribe, or pursue a third option. And that's what they decided to do. The Jewish leaders got together and they found what they thought was some sort of legal loophole. And that loophole would allow them to make an exception to this strict oath that they had taken not to give their Jewish daughters to the surviving Benjamites. Okay? As it turns out, in an incredibly complicated story, I'm sure your head is spinning if this is the first time you've heard it, they found what they considered this loophole thanks to the second previously unrevealed oath they took at Mizpah. Okay? The Israelites had also sworn that any Jewish tribe or any Jewish clan that did not go into battle against the Benjamites would be subject to destruction. Okay? So having made these two foolish vows, the leaders arrive at what appears to them, in their eyes, to be a reasonable solution. They discover that one city, Jabesh Gilead, in the tribe of Gad, that particular group of people, that particular group of men, they had not joined with them in the fight against Benjamin. So that, according to this second oath, placed the city under the death sentence. The ridiculous scheme they hatched was that according to this second oath, they would destroy all the people in Jabesh Gilead except the virgins, who they would then give as wives to these men of Benjamin. Now, this alleged solution created a number of problems, or certainly questions. The most obvious one is, which you may be asking, how can you get wives for these surviving Benjamite warriors from Jabesh Gilead if you vowed to kill everybody in the city? The second vow was not, 
we'll kill all non-participating clans and tribes except the virgins. The vow was we will kill everyone in the town. Okay? So in order to supposedly keep the terms of the first vow, they violate the terms of the second vow. Okay? The Jews were evidently not bothered by this small detail. The author doesn't say why this obvious flaw was not discussed. So they make war against the city, sparing the virgins while slaughtering the virgins' families and the rest of the city. Another problem with this attempt to get wives for these Benjamite warriors was that this massacre in Jabesh Gilead provided only 400 of the 600 needed virgins. Well, that sent the leaders back to the drawing board, and their ridiculous scheme to acquire 200 additional wives is recorded beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to read these because it's important that we hear it again. Verse 15, And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of, his, of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The story reads a little bit like the Broadway musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. For those of you who haven't heard that, the Potomies are living up in the mountains, right? Okay, they live up in the mountains and they need wives. And so they do what comes naturally to these people, evidently. They go down into the valley, into one of these cities, and they decide to snatch each, each one a wife and bring them back up. Okay, that's kind of what happened here. Uh, the Jewish warriors uh, take this they take this initiative, this godless initiative, because this is what fallen human reasoning led them to, to solve this problem. The Jewish leaders, as we'll go over it again, instruct these 200 unmarried Benjamite warriors to hide in the vineyard until the women at the festival of Shiloh come out to dance. There's some sort of, again, festival here. The women danced only with women at this time, so there would have been less chance for males to come and interfere. It was mostly a, a female crowd here, so that gave these people a chance. The men of Israel declare open season on these dancing women and command the 200 Benjamites to seize the ones they wanted to be their wives. We can only imagine what this scene must have looked like. The poor women 
are reduced to a herd of breeding animals as the men behave like someone sifting through a litter of puppies to find just the right one for them. They totally dehumanize these women. Another obvious flaw in this proposed solution, which they even admit, is this forces the fathers of these Shiloh virgins to receive into their families as son-in-laws these men of Benjamin, okay? These are the same men of Benjamin that they had earlier declared a holy war upon and whom they vowed they would not give their daughters to. But the Israelites had thought of that little detail, and they declared to these men of Shiloh that they would be innocent of violating the oath because they had not actually given their wives, these wives, to the Benjamites, but instead had them forcibly taken from them by the Benjamites. Is this twisted or what? Okay? Very twisted reasoning, which is part of the whole message, isn't it? Very twisted. They're in effect saying to these fathers in Shiloh, we don't want you to break the vow, so we'll just violently abduct your daughters. Okay? These pitiful women are forcibly dragged from their families and forced to live as little more than slaves. The huge irony that's behind all of this is the 11 tribes who had earlier violently punished the rapist of Benjamin now command men from Benjamin to essentially rape these Israelite women they kidnapped to be their wives. I mean, this is rape. These women don't want to be married to these people. Their fathers haven't given permission. This is a wretched dehumanization of the women of Shiloh and another example of the twisted reasoning that occurs in a culture where each man does what is right in his own eyes. The story concludes with these newly married couples going back to their destroyed villages in Benjamin and rebuilding them. The author labors to emphasize how despicable all of this is by closing the narrative in verse 25 with, in those days there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. This statement is also a fitting way to close the book of Judges, which has throughout been marked by people who are rejecting God and doing what they thought best which was worshiping the gods of their neighbors. What starts off as a domestic problem between a priest and a concubine ends up costing the nation of Israel tens of thousands of lives and very nearly eradicating one of the 12 tribes. And they repeatedly did what was right in their own eyes instead of turning to God to get them out of this mess and they just dig a deeper and deeper hole for themselves. I want to go over this in brief review, using a Dan Block summary of events, starting at the end event and working back, just to make sure we all have this together so that when we apply it, we'll be able to see the application. The story ends, as we just read, with 200 Benjamite men kidnapping 200 virgins dancing at this religious festival in Shiloh because the leaders of Israel were only able to secure 400 virgins by destroying Jabesh Gilead. The reason they destroyed Jabesh Gilead is because the Jews vowed that anyone who would not go to war against Benjamin was sentenced to destruction. And they reasoned that if they forcibly snatched the virgins from this condemned city, it would enable them to keep their oaths not to freely give their virgins to the Benjamite males. Okay? The reason there were only 600 surviving Benjamite warriors is because the other tribes went to war against Benjamin and decimated them. The reason they went to war against Benjamin is because there was this response to receiving the body parts of the Levite's concubine. 
The reason these parts were distributed to the tribe is because the Levite cut up his concubine and sent them to them. The reason the Levite cut up his concubine is because she'd been gang-raped by the sexual deviants in Gibeah, and he wanted to dramatically call the nation to arms against the perpetrators. The Levite was in Gibeah in the first place because he was returning home after retrieving his concubine who had abandoned him and fled to Bethlehem. The reason she fled to Bethlehem is because there had been some kind of marital dispute between the Levite and his concubine. She had left him. Do you hear how that mushroomed? That's what the author wants us to see. The author is screaming at us through this disgusting and complicated story that this is what happens in a context of sinful independence from God. Think of it like a room filled with highly flammable gas vapor. You add one tiny spark to that atmosphere and it all goes up. Israel during the period of the judges was an incendiary environment for sin. There was nothing to check the spread of sin because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So the sin became so pervasive, so penetrating, that all it took was a domestic squabble in the right place, in the right time, with the right people, and it all goes up in flames. Chapter 21 chronicles the Jews' repeated attempts to put out the fire they'd started when people made decisions independently from God. But each of their foolish interventions by the leaders just throws more gasoline on the fire. Okay? That's the story. What are we to make of this? What are we to do with this? How do we apply this strange, complicated, and at points sickening story for today? First, let's take a look at a moral lesson, and then we're going to take a look at what this story tells us about God. A moral lesson, which is an important one, is simply this. Unless we humble ourselves and sincerely invite God into our sinful messes, we will only breed more sin. Unless we humble ourselves and sincerely invite God into our sinful messes, we will only breed more sin. The Jews never really, truly humbled themselves in a way that produced any lasting fruit. In chapter 20, after 40,000 Jewish men lay dead on the battlefield in their war with Benjamin, they managed to experience a slight level of brokenness. But we know it was superficial because here in chapter 21 they go right back to making huge decisions resulting in deaths of thousands of Jews and the dehumanization of all these women. And no lasting dependence on God. They cry out to God, but when he doesn't answer, they go right on without him. First, independent with God, they swore this first oath at mitzvah that no one should give their daughters to any of the surviving Benjamite warriors. Where did they get that from? Okay? It's true that these men had done a great evil defending the rapists in Gibeah, but there's no suggestion anywhere that that oath comes from God. They're freelancing here. Second, they made this second vow that anyone not going to war against Benjamin will be destroyed. Okay? The terminology that is used is the same kind of terminology that's used in Deuteronomy when God is describing the holy war. The harem. A holy war is when God, moving into the promised land through his people, destroy the population of the Canaanites. 
because they had been burning their children in the fire for 400 years and doing a lot of other reprehensible things. God had waited 400 years while his children were in slavery. And so finally he says, I'm going to fight a holy war against these people, using you to wipe them out. You can live in the land for a while, and we'll see how you do. Okay? So there's a holy war. The wording that's used here is the same. They are, they are declaring a holy war against the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? First of all, only God can declare a holy war. Okay? Second of all, you certainly don't declare it against one of the tribes of Israel. Okay? Third, they independently decide that the tribe of Benjamin must at all costs be preserved. Where do they get that? That's an assumption. They never ask God. Jesus lost one of the twelve. Maybe the Jews were supposed to lose Benjamin. The author declares in verse 15 that it was the Lord that had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. It was God. He was at work. It's no stretch to say that if God wanted to restore Benjamin, the creator of the universe could have come up with an infinitely better plan than these godless, immoral, hypocritical, legalistic, dehumanizing schemes hatched by these Jews. If we think this complex and bizarre story could only be barely applicable to us because it is so far-fetched, we are gravely mistaken. Let's think through a little thought game, a little mental game, and see a tragic chain reaction of sin from contemporary life. Here it is. A young, unmarried couple, both from Christian homes, they begin to date. And after repeatedly quenching the Holy Spirit's warning to them, they begin a sexually active relationship. Several months later, and blinded by their lust to the serious flaws in their relationship, they blissfully announce that they're engaged, and in several months, they get married. After the rings go on the fingers and the initial lust dies down, however, they discover to their horror that the significant weaknesses in their relationship that had been covered up by their lust begin to violently manifest themselves. Independent of any godly counsel, the couple doesn't do the hard work of repenting of their sin, learning to trust God, and seriously confront their root issues. They instead choose to have a couple of kids because they reason that having a family will somehow help their marital problems. The two children that the couple brings into the world only contribute to the problems because, as any parent knows, raising children increases marital stress, not decreases. After five more years of bitter and ugly conflict, they reason that the only solution is divorce. After a few years of divorce life, they become lonely and they find two other people to marry. Those marriages statistically have a less chance of success than the first ones. All this was squarely rooted in what was right in their own eyes without any consideration of God's will, God's counsel, God's word. The two children from their first marriage grow up in a broken home and in blended families and carry emotionally unmet needs, enormous ones. 
As they grow into their teen years, they try to find satisfaction and healing for their deep hurt in dating relationships where they soon become sexually active. And apart from God's redeeming intervention, they repeat the cycle of the parents, only worse. All that starts with two teenagers who should never have been alone together. And out of a repeated pattern of doing what is right in their own eyes comes this ocean of God-dishonoring human wreckage. And there is nothing far-fetched about that illustration. This kind of terrible cycle of sin is acted out every day and many times a day within the church of Christ. And the point is not just relevant to the sins of premarital sex and divorce. A thousand other sins could have been cited as the first sinful pebble to drop into a lake of sin with many succeeding concentric circles radiating out into the increasing destructive consequences. Okay? Again, the point of application is, in the context of sinful independence from God, sin grows and spreads, eventually shattering more and more lives unnecessarily. A crucial sidebar to this truth is that at any point in that contemporary illustration or in Judges 19 to 21, at any point, if the parties in that sinful cycle of sin would have honestly sought after God and repented of their sin, he could have in some way redeemed it and ultimately brought joy to those involved. Some of you here today may be living in a home or a family that is highly flammable spiritually. Maybe you've made decision after decision about your job, your relationships, your family, whatever, that are not based in God's Word, but were what seemed best in your own eyes. Please know this. If you don't repent, it will all go up in flames someday. If not in this world, then in the fires of hell, which is the ultimate destiny of people who, though they may be in evangelical churches every Sunday morning, nonetheless live their lives doing what is right in their own eyes, because Jesus isn't their Lord, and if he's not their Lord, he's not their Savior. God's call to us is to repent of our sin wherever we are in that cycle of destruction in order to prevent it from dishonoring God further and completely engulfing us and those we love in flames. There are many in the body of Christ who would love to help you get back on track with Jesus. You can know joy again. The initial process of admitting your problem, very difficult. But not nearly as difficult as increasingly destructive consequences that will manifest themselves for decades and maybe generations to come. That's the moral lesson for us. Now let's look at this from a God-centered perspective. That is, what does this story tell us about God? And that's always the most important truth we can pull out of any text in the Bible. What light does this shine on God for us? Here's just one. That is, God will often allow his children to foolishly forge ahead in sinful independence of him, using the inevitable train wreck of our sins to discipline us. 
perspective. It's the same truth from a God-centered perspective. God will often allow his children to foolishly forge ahead in sinful independence of him, using the inevitable train wreck of our sins to discipline us. This is unquestionably what is happening in the book of Judges. The pattern seen in much of this book is repeated over and over and over again. First, the Jews rebel against Yahweh by turning to other gods. God then responds by allowing the pagans around them, whose gods the Jews have been worshiping, to brutally oppress the Jews. Next, sometimes after decades of misery, Israel sees enough of the light to finally cry out to Yahweh for help. God then sends them a deliverer, and he conquers the oppressors. That is, until the Jews once again flee their covenant God and for the pagan gods as they worship them, when the sinful pattern begins again, and it repeats over and over and over. Notice what God does not do in each one of those cycles. First, God, in each one of those cycles, never sends a prophet to warn his people of a coming judgment for their sin. In chapter 2, he he sends a prophet and says, because you didn't kill all the Canaanites, you're going to have all sorts of trouble. But in each one of those cycles, God never sends a prophet to warn his people of the coming judgment for their sin. The judges were not prophetic figures. They were military deliverers, okay? So he doesn't do that. Second, although he, he uses these judges miraculously at some point, God never sends signs and wonders to prove that he, not the pagan gods, is the true God and that they need to worship him, not them. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't use any of those dramatic, supernatural, mystical means to summon his wayward people back to him. No, he uses much more mundane means to keep bringing his errant children back to him. He simply allows them to commit the sins they want to sin and live out the brutal consequences that repeated sin always brings. They repeatedly come under satanic oppression through their pagan neighbors until finally horribly battered by their sin, they choose to cry out to him. What we see in this last chapter of the book of Judges is God working in many of the same ways with his people. That is, he allows them to go off on their own and come up with these idiotic schemes to try to solve problems brought on by them by their own sinful independence from God. Under God's providence, they bury themselves deeper and deeper under their sin until at the end of the story, the nation has been torn apart by civil war, thousands of Jews are dead from the battles, and hundreds of their women have been dehumanized by their fellow Israelites. God was not absent. God was not helpless in any of this. He did what he normally does in these kind of circumstances. He gave them over to what they wanted. That's what Paul says God's wrath can look like. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says three times that the way that God expresses in this life his wrath on the unrighteous is he gives them up to dishonoring of their bodies, verse 24, to dishonorable passions, verse 26, and to debased minds, verse 28. He gives them up. In other words, he gives them the sinful things they want and lets them reap the lethal consequences. Now, although God never pours out his condemnation on his children, as we've seen as judges, his fatherly discipline can look a lot like this. 
The difference between his loving discipline for his children and his condemnation on the unrighteous is that the discipline, unlike his wrath, according to Hebrews 12, is for the moment. It's momentary. It's temporary, and it's designed not for judgment. It's designed for correction. Some believers experiencing great trial and great difficulty are actually under God's loving discipline as they suffer the consequences of past sins they haven't repented of. God's loving discipline as they suffer the consequences of their past sin. The great news is our God is a redeeming God. If you don't remember anything else from this mishmash of details, remember that. Our God is a redeeming God. God loves to receive the glory that he receives by taking our messes, our absolute messes, sometimes decades in the making, and in his divine wisdom and power, making them into something beautiful. Turning our manure piles into Easter lilies. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. If, by His grace, we will do the hard work of repenting, trusting in His Word, and following His direction, rather than continuing to do what is right in our own eyes. Jesus died to redeem all our sins. And part of that redemptive work in His children is seen in His willingness to make something beautiful even out of our repeated decades-long sin. That is, if by His grace we obey Him and repent. If you're here today and you're not living in radical dependency from God or of God, if you're doing what is right in your own eyes, just know this. It's not too late to repent. He can and He will pull you out of the mess if you trust in Him and allow Him to direct your life according to His Word. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and this whole thing just seems so bizarre, try to remember this. When people who don't know God do what is right in their own eyes, they're blind. They've been blinded by their sin. They don't know they're blind. They would swear a thousand times they're not blind. They're blind, the Bible says. Their hearts have been covered in unbelief by the evil one so that they can't see the truth. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you need to know that there is a warning here for you. And the warning here is, even though you don't realize the cycles of sin that are going on in your family or in your life that may go on for decades to come, they're there. They're destructive in this life and they're ultimately destructive in the next. And God calls on you to repent and come to Him and know the joy of the Lord. Okay? May God give all of us the grace to live in dependence upon Him for His glory and for our lasting joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a very complicated story, and I'm sure that there are people here today uh, whose heads are spinning. God, I just pray that you would help them to know and to remember what they're supposed to remember. Father, I pray for me, I pray for all of us, that you would use this story as an example, as a warning to teach us that we need to trust you. And trusting you implies doing what you say. 
Thank you, God, that your promises, as we do that, ultimately we will know joy unspeakable and full of glory. God, I pray for those believers here today that through their inattention, through their sinful inclinations, have been trapped in cycles of sin, and you have been disciplining them for years, and they're not responding. God, I pray that you would give them the grace, even today, to repent, to start over, and to allow your redeeming hand into their life, turning this darkness into something glorious. Father, for those here today who may not know you, I pray, Father, that you would communicate to them what they need to know for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. Let's